0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants, and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW.
1: Those little white lies, we've all told them. I remember the bubble gum that I stole from the candy store. I was smacking it loudly in my mouth when I swore to the clerk that I didn't steal it, and the math test that I crammed for and still couldn't remember that one equation. I swore to my teacher that I was simply admiring my neighbor's pretty watch. Kids almost always get away with white lies. Adults sometimes get away with them. For politicians, they're a way of life.
2: Good morning, London. It is Thursday, January 16, 2014. I'm Bob Met, And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. And we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the clothes, everything will be all. And welcome to the show today. We're 519-661-3600 is a number you can call to reach us if you'd care to join in on the conversation. Or as always, write us, email us at feedback at justwritemedia.org. Org And today on the show, we're going to do some crying in our soup about democracy and political leadership. That's what I'll be starting off with. But later in the show, Robert, I, I, I understand you're going to be yelling at everybody to get a job. Is that, that what it is? <laughs> <laughs> Tim Hudak's <laughs> cry for right. a million jobs has got me going here. A million promises, right? Yeah. And conservatives and minimum wages and things like that. Yep. Well, white lies and politicians, as we heard in the opening, you know the reason that politicians can continually lie and get away with it. I think is this: is because people keep voting for them, <laughs> even after they lie, and so there's no real consequence to their irresponsibility. And uh, but I do have to say, in that opening scene that we just played from the from the series um, Silk Stockings, um, there were no white lies given in our opening audio selection. Uh, getting caught stealing bubble gum and denying it or getting caught cheating on a test and then lying about it isn't a white lie. They're just lies. <laughs> you know, if there's a color, I guess you'd say black lie if the lie, word lie needs an adjective. Children, quote, get away with lying because kids only understand authority and force. We assume up to a point that they're incapable of judgment and can therefore not be held legally responsible, though each instance of this is an opportunity to teach a moral issue behind why stealing or cheating is wrong to a child and the negative consequences of these actions outside the threat of punishment. Now, in a proper and very narrow context, a white lie is one calculated to prevent an unfair offense or insult or embarrassment, you know, when someone asks, like, how do you like my hair or something like that. Does this dress make me look fat? Yes, or something like that. It does. (laughs) And since answers to such questions are pretty relative and subjective, it's kind of not possible to lie in this situation, except to yourself about your feelings, maybe. (laughs) I don't know. So, uh, when you respond, yes, that dress looks lovely, that may well be true to the person you're complimenting to or someone else, So in your own mind you're going, but not to me. But what possible or positive purpose would be served to tell a person that? If anything, so-called white lies are really insincere, maybe compliments, not attempts at misrepresentation or fraud. I'll leave the last word on white lies to Robin Williams at the closing of our show today, where he has a few comments. Now, What has this got to do with politicians? Well, just about everything. I remember among the very first issues I had to confront and resolve when I got personally involved with the founding of the Freedom Party of Ontario back in the 1980s were the issues of voting and of democracy itself. And to that end, in collaboration with then-local businessman and political candidate Mark Emery, we came up with a series of essays under a larger heading, Can We Survive Democracy?, and it would appear that the issues we cr- clearly resolved to our satisfaction right from the start seem to still be major issues and concern you know, to already elected parliamentarians who should know better and to certain media columnists who still don't seem to have it quite right. And at the center of this debate sits federal conservative MP Michael Chong's Democratically Destructive Reform Act, uh, which had first reading in Parliament on December 3rd which Toronto edition staff writer Matthew Little of the Epic Times suggests actually has a chance of passing, quote the fact that Chong is a highly respected MP, a hard worker who shies away from the spotlight while standing firm on his principles, makes this bill noteworthy. While private members' bills rarely pass, it looks possible Chong could rally enough Tory support to secure passage of opposition MPs are on board. As of Wednesday, which was December 2nd, when he wrote this, that looks to be the case. The NDP will allow a free vote, and the party's Democratic reform critic, Craig Scott, has endorsed it. So has Liberal leader... Justin Trudeau. So, in quote, so summary, I think we have three socialists endorsing this Reform Act, Scott Trudeau and Chong himself. The National Post's Tristan Hopper on December 7, 13, described the Reform Act as being one that, quote, is going to let MPs vote out their party leader and constituency associations to pick their own candidates uh, without centralized oversight. Not from a party's point of view. That's insane. That's totally insane. Totally. I I can't believe they're talking like that. Of course, uh, that's another lie. The idea that there will be no centralized oversight. What it means in practice from this bill is that the government will be the centralized oversight, not the party. Isn't that insane? Can you imagine the government overseeing what we did at our meeting this past Sunday? Like, what would they have to do there? Right. I would quit. Nobody would run a political party. Um, it's a party itself that has to run it. And this represents, folks, I, I mean it, the literal end of freedom of association in Canada if this were to pass. It is fascism at the party level and communism at the elected caucus-, caucus level. It would literally mean that a party like the Freedom Party of Ontario would not be allowed to exist because the party, because freedom and capitalist principles on which the party is based would never be able to operate in the political environment that they're proposing. It can't work. You know, in an earlier December 33rd column, Hopper noted that conservative Michael uh, Chong, quote, started off as a progressive conservative and that he is, quote, a well-known standard-bearer for the brand of hyper-democracy espoused by Preston Manning's Reform Party. It's not democracy, by the way, it's just majority rule. You know, vote. No democracy at all, in fact. He also notes that, quote, in Britain where similar legislation is in force, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher was ousted by restive of members of the Conservative Party, end quote. Now, Chong's Reform Act has three essential components to it. One, it would allow 15% of the Prime Minister's caucus to begin a non-confidence non-confidence process against their leader by forcing a secret ballot to be held among the caucus members. Two, Chong's Reform Act would empower the caucus members, not the Prime Minister, to decide who can be on the caucus. And three, Chong's Reform Act would remove the legal requirement to have party candidate nomination papers signed by the party leader. Now, that's something that i would support because this kind of requirement can be put into a party constitution if the party desires it as it does for example with us we already had that in place in our party but i, I don't want the government to be making that decision i think it's up if another party wants to run differently that's up to them So. From late November to early December of last year, several columnists of the National Post expressed varying views about Chong's private member bill, and generally it lined up like this. Um, Definitely the strongest and and most deranged supporter of the bill (laughs) was Andrew Coyne, and it was his views on the subject I found to be most objectionable and very misinformed. Coyne was pretty much 100% wrong on this one, and worse, he seemed to have a contempt for the basic purpose of a political party. In his December 7th editorial, he asked the question, quote, should Parliament really be in the business of regulating the way these private organizations, political parties, select or deselect their leaders? Isn't that the party's prerogative? It's a legitimate concern, he says, if you buy the premise that political parties are really private organizations in which the state has no business. But they aren't, he says. Well, that's patently false. It's so false, I can't believe he he could get away with printing it. Just for the record, political parties are private organizations, and they couldn't possibly exist otherwise. It's as simple as that. And (laughs) And, uh,
3: who who would know better than you? Who started
2: one? I started one, and and, and I'm still running one, and it's an officially registered party, so I know what I'm talking about, and this guy doesn't, trust me. He says, these are not church groups we're talking about. Political parties are not purely private organizations. Yes, they are. Or the kind who wish only to remain private, separate, and apart from public square. They are well-oiled machines. (laughs) Now, there is an outrageous fantasy. (laughs) Has he never been to a political party meeting? Wow. Um, for combat in the arena of public opinion whose raison d'etre is to win and wield power over the rest of us gee we don't even have the right purpose to our party (laughs) (laughs) holy cow As seekers after power, they are holy creatures of the law. They cannot exist except as it prescribes. How then can it be improper that they be regulated by the law, he asks. Now, that's got to be about as stupid a thing as I've ever read in the National Post. Uh, Suppose instead of running as a federal candidate for a political party, I choose to run as an independent candidate. How then can the government turn me into a creature of law and not allow me to exist except as the government prescribes? You know, how, you know, how the hell can I change a government that's empowered to regulate my ability to influence the, the arena of public opinion this is a democratic obscenity folks and what's more Coyne again incorrectly adds parties benefit from a range of privileges and exemptions not to mention public subsidies the 75% tax credit on donations for example the least they can do is do in return is to be accountable to parliament to parliament are you kidding me We're not elected yet. We're supposed to be accountable to Parliament. And I notice, and notably, not to the people or to their own supporters. Now, firstly, the 75% tax credit is not a public subsidy to a party. The tax credit goes only to small-time contributors in the couple of hundred dollars range, the guy who can't otherwise afford to participate in the democratic process, which I'll explain a little later on. The largest contributors receive no tax benefits beyond a very small limited point. It's like progressive taxes in reverse, actually. But the political party only gets the donation from voluntary contributor, and that's it. Over. Whatever happens to the tax credit is between the contributor and the tax department. And many people don't claim them, can't claim them. Doesn't re- doesn't matter. They're over the limits, under the
3: limits. The tax credit is not a subsidy. It is the person's own money coming back to him.
2: That's that's right. he hasn't comes paid, out of Nobody else's pocket. If he hasn't paid it, he doesn't get it. That's right. It's as simple as that. The, the, and the political party has no knowledge of these circumstances. We don't know when we issue a tax credit whether someone can use it or not. You know, mm-hmm. that's that's not between us and the government. The tax credits were in introduced to encourage broad democratic participation, not to subsidize political parties. And independent candidates can also issue tax receipts for the donations they receive, but they don't receive any direct subsidies. Isn't this obvious? Hasn't he looked at the rules? I just don't get it. It's too stupid for words. Also on the 100% wrong side was Father Raymond D'Souza, who imagined that, quote, "...indeed, ordinary MPs, given more scope, might even become initiators of policies themselves." Oh, my God, can you imagine the disaster? That would destroy any political party in terms of that party having any consistent purpose, direction, or philosophy. Initiation of policy is an internal party matter. You don't start initiating policies in the middle of a parliamentary hearing. Isn't that insane? And then, of course, there's Jonathan Kaye, very confused on the issue. He supports the Chong Bill, but the arguments he used spoke against it. Quote, political parties are, among other things, brands. All it takes is one or two embarrassing party members to sabotage years of hard brand building work, especially in the age of Twitter, and that's true. And the rest of his December 4th essay just, you know, just showed how he just doesn't get it. Matt Gurney, give Canada real right and left-wing choices. Right and left-wing choices. Within a single party, too. That's what, he, that's what they're all advocating, you know. And he, sa- he writes, it seems to me we have to save our MPs from their own general uselessness. The reality is every political party races to the mushy, moderate middle of Canadian politics. Well, that's called socialism. The power of party leaders to control the policies of their entire organization and enforce communications on the rank and file stifles the diversity
3: you don't want diversity in a political party. You know, when they talk yeah. about power and control, yeah. nobody has to belong to a party. If you're elected as, an, um, as a member of parliament, you can resign your seat. You can cross the floor. You, you can sit as an independent. Right. There's no coercion there There's at nothing all. nothing
2: at all. That's what they don't... They just they just don't seem to get it. And Kennedy um, says, a stable, pros- prosperous place and our lame federal politics is arguably a feature, not a bug. But I think we'd all be better off If our angry debates and sensational scandals were about real issues, not character flaws or relatively minor matters like Senate expense forms. I want an NDP that's left-wing, a Conservative Party that's right-wing, and a Liberal Party that's somewhere in the middle. I want real political battles over real issues. Blah, blah, blah. Well, I'm sorry the world is not filling in with his plans. He says, that's only going to happen if party backbenchers feel safe to force contentious issues on their party leaders. Well, I'm sorry, but in Parliament you're supposed to be fighting your opposition, not your party leader. Okay, that's that. And as soon as you fight your party leader, you're going to lose every election battle after that. Uh, this is so wrong; it's double plus bad wrong. I mean, it's it, it's it's a if it's a political debate you want, then let Freedom Party into the ring. Yet I happen to know that this guy wouldn't even give a, a party like Freedom Party the time of day to read our media releases. Okay, <laughs> so he's not looking for a debate. He doesn't want a debate. Uh, demo- you know, democracy and democratic debates are for the political marketplace between elections. In Parliament the bills that are introduced are the results of those previous debates and all that's left to do is vote for or against m- with minor arguments. Columnist Chris Selle opposed to Chong's bill but supported one of its provisions, ending the legal requirement of the party leader to endorse the party's candidates. And, and I can support that to a degree because you can still put that requirement into the party itself if you want it. He concluded, I see no reason, why, uh, uh, no reason at all why any party should be forced to adopt these procedures at the will of Parliament as a whole. If Mr. Chong thinks he has such great ideas, he should try selling them to his party. And then there's David Frum. He was the most consistently opposed and saw its flaws instantly. Quote, Stephen Harper numbered among the dissidents who quit the conservatives for a new reform party. Reform promised more participation and accountability. Reform party candidates proudly declared their beliefs on issues ranging from abortion to evolution, remember that one, Mm -hmm. to immigration. The new party soon found itself very nearly as bedeviled by embarrassments as Mulroney's progressive conservatives and utterly incapable of setting an
3: agenda. Or holding the initiative. Does this ring a bell with you, Robert? You're, you were once part it's of that party. Ironic, in a sense, because uh, no, not the Reform Party. Uh, oh, you but were the with Canadian, the Canadian Alliance, Alliance yeah. which was the offshoot of that. But the only reason I went into the Canadian Alliance was because I could vote my own way. Because it really wasn't a good party yeah. to begin with. I didn't agree with a lot of. Well, I actually did agree with a lot of. Well, the sure, I'd there say, were some. But uh, there were items there that I knew that I would be. Uh, on the outs with the party, Uh but they said that, no, no, your voice comes first, the voice of you and your constituents. (laughs) So he writes, uh, it's not really very surprising
2: then that when Stephen Harper emerged as leader of a reunited centre-right, he saw it as one of his first jobs to impose some discipline. If a prime minister has pledged that his government won't take action on abortion during its next mandate, and a backbencher insists on trying anyway, that action makes liars out of the whole government, doesn't it? He's got it. That's why politicians come across as liars. The Reform Act is a grant of power to each party's most irresponsible and refractory MPs. It's not regional interests that will get more airing, but factional interests. More exciting politics is not the same as better government. That's a good statement. I it like is, that. actually. I like that. Now, we're going to take our first break here. And, uh, you know, uh, this is from the comedy series Hogan's Heroes. You remember that one. And Hogan's Heroes, they weren't a democracy. But they fought for democracy with a particularly noticeable absence of voting as such. Hogan was their leader, and his orders were obeyed faithfully, not blindly or without question, but because he had earned their trust thanks to his past wise, though not infallible, judgment. Even when he was wrong, Hogan was wrong for the right reasons. But the whole group was threatened by democracy in one episode, the fifth one, by an unexpected and unwanted change in leadership. The new leader did not share the purpose of the group because he didn't even know about it. Yet he was the holder of legitimate authority under which that group was constituted. So how can the caucus of Hogan's heroes rid themselves of their unwanted leader in a legitimate way? Believe it or not they were kind of parliamentary about it and I'll explain after we take this break for a smile and a short story about leadership on the side of democracy.
4: Colonel Hogan, I have sent for you because I want to tell you a very funny joke.
5: You're kidding.
4: A very funny joke. You'll enjoy it.
5: Look, Colonel, it's almost nine o'clock, and chances are I've heard it.
4: You will sit there and you will enjoy it. (laughs) Oh, boy. It seems there were these two, uh, what you call, racetrack (laughs) touts. Now, one tout was telling the other about meeting a very rich man at the racetrack who bought him food, drinks, and introduced him to pretty girls. Yeah. Now, uh, the tout told him to bet on eight losers in a row. The next day, the rich man still wanted to meet the tout at the track. Did you meet him, the first tout asked? What do you think the second tout answered?
5: I could never guess. I had to lose him. He was bad luck. <laughs> It's a real <laughs>
4: five-slapper, all right. Look at this. There else. is something else. Ever since you've been at Starlock 13, strange things are happening. Very strange. Are you suggesting that I'm responsible? I am suggesting nothing. But you are bad luck. <laughs> I shall have to lose you.
5: Lose me? Oh, you mean send me home. <laughs> Much as I appreciate <laughs> that. It's- You will
4: stay right here! (laughs) Lammenscheid! Uh, Yes, Herr Commandant. Calling Colonel Crittenden at once. Uh, He is here, Herr Commandant. Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) Colonel Crittenden reporting to Camp Commandant as requested. Colonel Hogan, may I present Colonel Crittenden of the Royal Air
5: Force? How do you do, Hogan? Just shut down. Months ago, been in Stellar 18. You had him transferred? What is your exact date of rank, Colonel Hogan? You know my date of rank. And I guess he has about 10 years on me. 12, actually. <laughs> Makes him senior prisoner of war officer. Nice going, Clink. No offense to you, Crindon. Now how you feel, old oh boy?
0: I'll pop in on you in the morning to take over, right after calisthenics.
5: We don't do calisthenics. <laughs> oh, no. right after morning parade, then? We don't parade either.
0: <laughs> well, well, quite a bit of shaking up to do, what? Commandant.
4: Nice fellow, eh,
5: Helgen? (laughs) Colonel, you can't just take this line down. When you get the pink slip, you get the pink slip. I do hold out for an old watch. Well, we're going to do something about it. What?
4: Well, uh... We'll hold an election. That's it. That's the first time in military history. We'll hold an election. We'll get all the guys in the camp together and we'll just... (laughs)
5: <laughs> or something like that
4: <laughs> look why don't we all escape eh? that's, a, that's a great, idea.
0: A great oh, it,
5: that's... hold it we're not here to, to escape. escape there's work to be done what under crittenden this is bigger than any one man wait a minute, gonna just wait just a minute. That. Well,
4: wait a minute the british didn't send this crittenden to take colonel hogan's place and the french didn't right? send him and the Americans didn't send him, so we can just ignore him. Oh, what? Right? Hey, wrong! <laughs>
5: wrong! He's senior prisoner of war officer now, and he's in charge of operations. Look, everything's gonna turn out just fine. Yeah, just fine. that will be so, uh, fun. Colonel. Okay, Morning, chaps. Hello, oh, Colonel. I'd like to introduce you to my staff. Sergeant Kinch is in charge of operations. Corporal LeBeau is our chef. this is... No our... need
0: for that, oh boy. Nothing against these fellows at all, but of course I'll choose my own. Is this my desk?
5: I was just clearing it out, yeah. Colonel, before you begin, let me put a hypothetical case to you. Yes, of course, Hobart. Suppose you were in a camp that specialized in helping other people out of Germany. Other people? What other people? Suppose a German who had lots of information about the German high command. But that would be spying. You could say that, yes. In that
0: case, which would be definitely bad form for prisoners of war, I would hand over any information I had to the German camp
5: commander. You would. Like a shot. You don't happen to know any such operation, Joe? Just asking. <laughs> Was he serious about turning us into the Germans? Very serious.
0: We just let him. got to stop him. Absolutely. All right, going, oh, oh, right.
5: hold it, hold it. What you've got to realize is we're very limited to what we can do here. He's still in command. We can't go against the Articles of War. I mean, once discipline breaks down, we're no better than a mob.
4: Colonel Crittenden is in the cooler for attempted
5: escape, besides which he denies everything. Yeah, frankly, Commandant, I do think what happened was pretty deplorable. Mm-hmm. Not a single escape. We did make quite a team. <laughs>
4: right. Take down an official report. Transfer Colonel Crittenden back to Starlock 18 at once.
0: But what about the official report to
4: Berlin? Yeah, uh, forget it. <laughs> Colonel Hogan, just tell me one thing. Was it really Colonel Crittenden who was responsible for yesterday? Well, let's put it this way.
5: We had to lose him. He was bad luck.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That was a funny episode. In the end, Hogan appealed to the same authority to get rid of the unwanted leader as who appointed the leader, which was Colonel Clink appearing here symbolically or representatively as the voter, (laughs) if you want to put it that way. But I found interesting, note that throughout, the only leader that was respected actually was Hogan. You heard that in there, didn't you? Even when he was forced to second place. Had he not been there to hold his troops in line, there would have been outright chaos and escapes, or even worse, an election, which would have undermined Hogan's own authority had he accepted it. After all, once they elected him in, his troops could just vote him out if they didn't like him, right? So he couldn't accept those terms under any conditions. Doesn't that make sense? That makes sense. Yeah. So, um, you know, democracy is for the political marketplace, not for within political parties or... Uh, or you know, within de- de- democratically elected parliaments that's where voting takes place and uh, I want to make a clear point I know I'm running out of time here but this is my key point here I think most voters romantically believe that when they vote during elections that they're quote participating in democracy you hear that all the time oh you didn't vote you got no, no right to complain and all that right in fact that's not really true what they're really doing is just voting that's all And as radical as that might sound, it's easy to demonstrate in the sense of them not being participants in democracy as much as they think they are. Because, as participants in democracy, voters are no different whatsoever from the eligible voters who do not vote. They participate in democracy, too, by not voting. And that's participating. Nor from the landed immigrants and other resident non-citizens who cannot vote by law. Yet all these voting and non-voting groups alike live in a democracy and derive the rights and freedoms of that democracy, whether they fit into any of the above three voting categories I mentioned or not, you know, maybe like children who can't vote or or foreign visitors who who come here to visit, they still enjoy our basic rights. So, as far as a simple act of voting is concerned, and this is where it's interesting, if the choices are offered in an election, let's see, the choices offered are, say, red, blue, and orange, well, voters will vote for red, blue, or orange. If the choices offered are red, red, and red, the voters will vote for red, red, or, hmm, let me see now, red, <laughs> right? Increasing the voter turnout, by the way, would still result in the red vote. (laughs) Oh, got to get more people voting. No, that's not where the change comes from. The change doesn't come from the bottom, it comes from, quote, the top in a way, the political party. And none of this is is democratic participation, the voting. It's just voting, a process that goes on in almost every kind of country under almost any kind of government, free or dictatorship, and even goes on in corporate boards, which are not democracies, in small associations, and in any other group where some kind of common purpose is undertaken. But who determines what that common purpose will be? And how will that be done? Well, in a free society, that's entirely up to free citizens under freedom of association to choose whether to associate or not, and then having done so, to determine their own rules and, where applicable, voting procedures, as they themselves choose to peaceably govern themselves. Realistically, it's more accurate to say that voting takes place after the democratic process has been undertaken after a democracy, quote, exists. After all, you can't even have the right to vote, right? Unless you first have a democracy in place. So how did that democracy get there? You can't vote for a democracy when you don't already have one. Again, as with the creation argument we discussed last week, we're in axiomatic territory. Remember this point because it applies to political parties and politicians. The purpose of any association belongs to its creators. And they determine the purpose. Even in a non in, in democracy, you can probably still vote for the non democratic party of someone else's choosing, as is done in all one party states and dictatorships. Now, here's my radical statement. I think there's only one way in our free democracy for its citizens to actually participate in an effective democracy. That means participate in actually making and shaping the options and the policies that you will get to vote for, but once every you know, once every four or five years. And that's by joining or supporting a political party before, during, and after elections. That's where the real exercise of democracy and the real power of the people resides. When governments regulate and control political parties outside of electoral rules, common to all participants, democracy ceases to exist. So that's my lesson for today.
3: Party on, people. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Robert? Any Well, insights obviously
3: I agree with you, considering that both you and I have been instrumental in the Freedom Party, and I've been in uh, other parties as well. And um, exactly what you're saying is, is true, is that that is where the real um, influence
2: lies. You know, it bothers me sometimes when after an election... Even you know, I, get a, I talk on other talk shows and, and I admit that you know, I didn't vote in that last election and then I get a, a, a tongue lashing right? <laughs> and meanwhile they don't realize I'm politically active very, almost every day of the week you're more politically right? active than anyone I know and, and they don't realize that I am exercising my vote by not voting if, if, if all I've got is two or three bad choices, people are moving in the wrong direction I got, I can either support the wrong direction, which I will not do or refuse to vote, or run myself, and I can't always do that so then I have to exercise my best option. And that is often not voting. And you're also participating in a democratic process if you refuse to vote for someone you might consider your oppressor. Come on now. Wouldn't that make sense? Anyways, shall we move on, Robert? Let's move on. What are we going to be talking about next? Politics. (laughs) More (laughs) politics. Well, let's take a break and we'll return.
0: Yes? Excuse me, Minister. Number 10 on the phone. Uh, The uh, political office, the PM's just seen the news. Right. Hello, Jim here. (laughs) Yes, I just saw that too. Yeah, well, I don't think we need to be too worried about a little local difficulty. Well, not in view of the jobs and the the exports. Well, no, not many jobs. About 90, I think. Yes, but the export... Oh, you do, do you? Yes. Yes, well, I was coming round to that viewpoint myself. Yes. Yes. Right. (laughs) Humphrey. (laughs) Something has just struck me. So I noticed. (laughs) You know, there could be arguments against this scheme. Minister, you have already agreed. Yes, but it, it could lead to a loss of public confidence. You mean votes? No, 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 no. no. Votes, no, no. No, it's, uh, not that votes were a consideration, but heavens, no, no, not at all, no. But, but you see, it's the public will. This is a democracy. And the people don't like it. The people are ignorant and misguided. Humphrey, it was the people who elected me.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Minister, In a week, the whole thing will have blown over, and in a year's time, we will have a safe and successful new factory on Merseyside. A week is a long time in politics, Humphrey. A year is a short time in government. All right, you're in government, I'm in politics, and the PM is not pleased. Minister, with the greatest possible respect... Oh, are you going to insult me again? (laughs) It could be said that you're putting party before country. Those hoary old clichés. Can't you think of a new one? Well, I think, Minister, that a new cliché could perhaps be said to be a contradiction in terms. Humphrey, you know nothing because you lead a sheltered life. I intend to survive, and I'm not crossing the PM. Oh, Minister, why must you always be so concerned with climbing the greasy pole? The greasy pole is important. I have to climb it. Why? Because it's there. Call me a Messerschmitt, General. I'm going back to England. You are a Messerschmitt and you're staying here.
5: (laughs) No! Yes!
4: Gentlemen, gentlemen, uh, why don't we all reconsider this in the morning? I mean, in the morning morning. (laughs)
3: Crink!
4: Check your security. My security? Uh-huh. is loose. It is very loose. Very loose. Excellent suggestion. As soon as I get my uniform on, I'll... Now. Now, now. now. Obviously the best time. And no schnapps on duty. <laughs> no schnapps. I was just about to say that. Ah!
0: <laughs> so, Sir Charles, you still wish to return to England? At once, Von Schlamm. It's countries like this that give fascism a bad name.
3: And, of course, one of the defining characteristics of fascism is wage and price controls, uh, something we know about in this country, because there is a considerable amount of of discussion recently about, once again, controlling wages, but not in the fashion of keeping them down in the public sector, like when uh, Trudeau did it or Bob Ray tried to do it, but of legislating a rise in pay in both the public and the private sector, namely the minimum wage. Just consider... You're you're a young person, you're a student, just out of high school, just out of university, and you want to climb that ladder of prosperity and self-sufficiency by getting a job and earning a wage. Now, the first rung on the ladder is too high to reach. They keep putting it up higher and higher. You can't even get on the ladder for some people because... Just out of, out, of it, out of high school, you're competing with a lot of other people, your skills aren't there yet. Right. So Why you can't even put your foot on the ladder of success because they keep raising that bottom rung.
2: And one employer wants to give someone a, a shot at a job that he has to pay him the same as, he, as he's already paying an experienced person exactly. for, Exactly. Right? So there's no learning curve
3: allowed in there. The minimum wages yeah. are an affront to freedom of association, to contract, and they are job killers. This is from the Canadian press of just January 14th. Quote, a group of doctors and nurses urged the Ontario government to raise the minimum wage to $14 from $10.25 an hour, calling poverty, quote, the biggest barrier to good health, unquote. Dr. Gary Block, a family physician at St. Michael's Hospital in downtown Toronto, said he often deals with patients who can't afford medication and finds he has to worry first about their living conditions before he deals with their health issues, unquote. So it's, it's one thing for a healthcare professional to step out of his comfort zone, Bob, of medicine and, and step into the economic and political arenas to suggest a rise in the minimum wage. But it's quite another for a business lobby group to almost suggest the very same thing, and this is again from the same report, quote, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business said large jumps in the minimum wage tend to hurt the very people they're supposed to help, low-skilled and low-income workers, because hikes force small businesses to absorb the cost through reduced hours, reduced training, and even job cuts. Now, of course, that is correct, but the inclusion of the words large jumps may have been an editorial insertion by the article's author, Keith Leslie, but it is written as if the CFIB might recommend a gradual increase in minimum wages that might be more reasonable and readily absorbed by business. If so, then the CFIB is agreeing with the principle that wages should have a bottom cap. It's just a matter of how much and over what length of time. This would be a <laughs> quintessentially conservative position to take. But it's not just the CFIB who believe in the fascist principle of wage controls. Again, from the same report, quote, the Ontario Chamber of Commerce and the Retail Council of Canada said they want any changes to the minimum wage linked to inflation rather than to the politically driven policy-setting agenda of incumbent governments. So on the face of it, the Chamber and the Council appear to want to remove politics from what is purely a political exercise, that of dictating wages. This, of course, is also a characteristic of the conservative mind, refusing to acknowledge the use of government force in the economy, seeking instead to find economic reasons to raise the minimum wage, and in this case, inflation. Ironically, inflation is always, almost always, also an economic consequence of government intervention in the economy. Now, there are two basic argument types against having a minimum wage, the economic arguments and the principled argument. (coughs) Now, the economic arguments fall into two categories. Those that demonstrate that a minimum wage prevents people, especially young people, from entering into the job market, resulting in an increase in unemployment. And those that demonstrate that minimum wages result in reduced profitability for businesses which cannot get around the dictated wage by laying off workers, such as farmers or fruit growers, who have to hire just so many people to get their crop in, no matter what the government dictates as their pay. The principled argument is as follows. It's absolutely nobody else's business what an employer plays an employee. That's it. Mind your own business. For anyone other than the employer or employee to suggest, or worse, force a wage condition on their voluntary contract is offensive and an affront to the freedom of both the employer and the employee. A minimum wage is a tool of fascists. There should be no minimum wage whatsoever. Now, this week, the progressive conservative leader, I use that word loosely, Tim (laughs) Hudak, Claimed that if he were Premier of Ontario, he would create one million jobs over eight years. You know, when I heard that, I thought of Doctor Evil with his pinky up to his mouth. One million jobs, <laughs> <laughs> just like a number he just pulls out of his, pulls out of a hat. You it know. would have sounded just as silly if he had said, "I'm going to
2: make create one job." <laughs> yeah, well said, Bob. Yes, you know, exactly. A- a- and politicians can't create jobs unless they're paying for it out of their own pockets. Right, he's not an employer. Yeah, so unless, so. He's, unless he's planning to hire a million assistants.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone, uh, even remotely aware of politics, would have laughed at such a claim knowing full well that Tim Hudak and the Conservative parties in Ontario have been responsible for the loss of countless millions of jobs and the loss of more freedom than the Liberals and the NDP combined. Uh, just consider that the PCs in Ontario brought in OHIP, which effectively outlawed the private health care industry, the health in- insurance industry. Conservative Premier uh, Howard Ferguson introduced the corporate income tax in 1932. Mm-hmm. Conservatives introducing a corporate income tax. Now, people out there think that, oh, the conservatives, they are fiscally responsible. It's its in their name. They're conservative. They don't do things um, dramatic. Well, what do you call introducing an income tax? What do you call introducing OHIP? Those are dramatic, life-altering changes for every person in this province. And we're still feeling the the, the, the problems from those uh, interventions mm. by conservative governments. And a conservative government, uh, Leslie Frost, introduced the provincial retail sales tax in 1961. Conservatives introduced the, the provincial sales tax, which is now the HST. <sighs> Since then, of that PST, the provincial sales tax, six out of the seven increases in the sales tax have been done by conservative governments. Oh only, my. only one liberal government raised the sales tax, and that was um, Oh uh, Peterson. Okay. 10-15 uh, years ago but all of the income increases in, in, in uh, provincial sales tax have been done by conservative governments uh, who was it well, you they're, were reading they're there about uh, conservative parties being brands well the conservatives oh. have, have done a remarkable job selling people the, the lie that they are fiscally responsible that they are low tax people that they want to lower taxes. They've introduced almost every bloody tax we have and they've increased it almost most of the time. They are the worst of the worst when it comes to taxation. You know, the income tax, the personal income tax was introduced by liberal uh, Mitchell Hepburn, uh, 36 I think, and every successive government, conservative government, since then has what? Kept it. Obviously they didn't repeal income tax. They They, they want the income tax as well. So much for your conservatives. Every one of these burdens on individuals and employers are job killers. It's just impossible to think of what kind of a prosperous uh, country we would have today if the conservatives and the liberals um, had just uh, minded what it was to be a government. And instead of of, uh, trying to tax us to death, get out of the economy altogether. Don't set wages. can, Can I make a point here? Yeah. Um... I think that
2: both groups, including the doctors and nurses, and that Dr. Gary Block you talked about, Mm -hmm. I don't think they were speaking for doctors, I think they were speaking on behalf of the unions, and because they're unionized groups, and that's a left-wing point of view, raise minimum wages. Meanwhile, the conservatives are the business group, and they always speak in favor of business. Even Hudak now wants us as citizens to subsidize businesses' electric rates. Coming up so that, we can, so that business can afford to come back. Now, I'm, I'm pro-business in the sense of not being against business and letting free enterprise, but I don't think anyone should be forced to subsidize a business or forced to support a business that can't support itself. Well, of course. And that's what I see as the big difference here. Um, basically, you've got a business group and a labor group. And there's no people group anymore. There's nobody representing the people anymore.
3: That is absolutely true, and the conservatives certainly don't do it because they are in bed with the left as well. because they are left.
2: Well, they think government should be run like a business. They think government's a business. No, if they thought that, then
3: uh, I think it would be working fine, but it's not. (laughs) No, they think it, and
2: they try to, to enact it, and they never learn from their errors that it's not. Government is not a business and cannot be treated like a business. It is an instrument of force. It's, it's, to be called a business, or even to be called labor, you have to first off be in a free market. If you're not in that marketplace, I don't know how legitimate your claim to business or labor is. You know,
3: there's a, a just working a tenant to government in the United States, it's called the separation of church and state. We don't have that here in Canada, but we have to push for a separation of the economy and the and the state. Yes, and um, you know
2: when i and that's in determining prices. Not not that the state wouldn't tax in legitimate ways.
3: There's no such thing as a legitimate tax. yeah, you have to fund the government. Yeah, there's other ways to fund the government. You do not tax. Taxing is a violation of a person's right. Right off the bat. Well, okay, we can argue about that. I think sales tax are a legitimate way of doing it. I. I think we've covered that before on another show about sales tax, didn't we? That it Mm -hmm. is the of of all the kinds of taxation, it is the more palatable because you have control over whether or not you consume. It becomes voluntary. Yeah. Um, Then is it really a tax? Well, if
2: if if any funding that the government gets, whether voluntary or otherwise, is still called a tax, then it's a tax. We, all, we call any money that the government gets a no, tax, no, even no. if they voluntarily raise it. And that's, no, that's, fees. A, that's a distinction problem. No, you well, have fees, and then fee. you can
3: opt into things or opt out of things, the, the services that governments uh,
2: Yeah, you can't, you can't opt in
3: and out of rights. Uh, no, you mm, cannot well. it, it opt <laughs> in or out of the police or right. anything like that. <laughs> that's what we're saying. Army. And those things <laughs> have to be paid for. But those things were all funded without taxation over 100 years ago. How did that happen? Because they they charge tariffs on imports, and th- therefore the citizens were not taxed, but the uh, the people importing still,
2: were. still form a form of sales tax.
3: Uh, yeah, but not on Trade the citizens tax. of the uh, of the country.
2: The anyway, point. Tim Hudak's claim Good point. of no, creating... no sales tax is, is is on the citizen of the country. It's on everybody in the country, <laughs> even visitors. That's
3: <laughs> anyway. We should have that debate. Yeah, Tim Hudak's claim of creating an environment to create a million jobs is just so laughable. It flies in the face of decades of mismanagement by the conservatives. Hudak should he ever become premier will be no different than his socialist predecessors he's not given one credible concrete policy promise to show that he knows anything about creating a single job or creating the climate where other people can create jobs. So let's take a little break and uh, be back right after this.
5: The Freedom Party says it is the only party that is offering a program that will make Ontario a better place. CFTO's Matt Nebrez takes a look at the party's platform.
1: We're going to be looking at, you know, uh, Dalton Eves or Ernie McGuinty. They really are the same fellow when it comes to policy. The differences are minuscule compared to what Freedom Party is offering the public. We believe that markets work and that uh, really we need more competition in health care, uh, in schooling, in electricity, in auto insurance, not less. You know, a few weeks ago, There was a lot of uh, talk in the media about a new website, uh, YouTube, and there were a few other video-sharing websites that were being discussed. And folks around the Freedom Party uh, executive table said, you know, what a great opportunity this might be to reach out, speak with other Ontarians, find out what's uh, on their mind, and maybe let them have a little bit better look at uh, who Paul McKeever is and uh, who Freedom Party is and what they're all about. I mean, we have the most popular videos on YouTube, four times more popular and the progressives, conservatives, and the liberal four times, we don't have advertising budgets. We're just there. And people come to us because they like what we say, not because they know who we are. They may like what you say, but they're not voting for you. That's only because. Uh, they, the, the number one factor in voting so far has been, well, you know, I just want to push out the guy who's in there, and to do that I'm going to use the party that's the second biggest. So, you know, that's the sort of hammerhead Uh, Approach to voting we don't ascribe to that and we know uh, That most Ontarians if given the opportunity to see that somebody represents other views than the ones they see in the liberal and conservative camps uh, Will start saying you know what Uh, it's time for revolution Uh, The conservatives are making themselves rather redundant and I think when they fall That's when a new party emerges and we're making sure that we're ready for that time There is no other party like freedom party in Ontario right now promoting lower taxes uh, and a better life There's no one uttering the word private sector competition except Freedom Party. Do you know why? Yes, the ghost of Mike Harris. And mm-hmm. as soon as everybody gets over that, and that's coming soon, because, you know, socialism can only work itself into a hole. Uh, people will be saying, you know what, it's time to do what we did in 95. It's time to look for a tax cutting party rather than one that's promising us more freebies.
5: Okay, tell me this. As you consider the kind of strategic future of yeah. your party, most parties in opposition focus on the government. The government mm-hmm. is the enemy, if you like. Right. Are the liberals th- the enemy as far as you're concerned? I would, I would assume that, that ideologically you are most closely aligned with the progressive conservative party Absolutely of Ontario. Not. And you say no. Well, no. People would assume that because you're both kind of center-right party right wing parties, is the assumption.
1: That's a, that's a flawed assumption in the sense that... Historically, it was the Progressive Conservatives that gave us socialized healthcare, the ban on private um, insurance, the rent controls, the Human Rights Commission, the, um, uh, the retail sales tax which is now the HST. Virtually every major s- shift into socialism has been due to the Progressive Conservative Party. The Liberal Party has been more... Um, twiddling the small knobs after the big damage is done by the Progressive Conservatives. But that's not the real reason why in this election we're targeting them. Uh, That is certainly one reason. They're, They're a force for... They're a destructive force as far as I'm concerned on the economy, the Progressive Conservatives. They're backward. They, in my view, are dishonest with the public.
3: Either we stand up today or we all pay tomorrow. We will fight this tax tooth and nail. Together, we'll stop this greedy tax grab dead
5: in his tracks and help our province move forward together. Thank you very much.
2: Would
3: a Premier Hudak then repeal
2: the HST? Well, I mean, listen. Uh, you know, our first chance to bring forward uh, uh, a budget would be uh, in uh, in spring of 2012. I just need a yes or no. Would a Premier Hudak repeal the HST? No. Listen,
5: I, I I can guarantee you taxes will be lower. Green energy. Uh, Act, You voted against it, constantly critical of the way the impact it's had on the economy, on energy prices. Would you repeal it? You know, the PC support renewable energy, but it has to be affordable for the families who pay the bills. So amend
1: rather than repeal, is that what you're talking about? You know, we'll, we'll see what's in the act worth keeping.
5: We will close down the coal plants by 2014 wind and solar should complement the system.
1: They never actually say what they're really interested in doing. They tell the people about, well, we're here for seniors and we're here for middle class, okay, so hardworking. Why are you targeting them? We're targeting them because unfortunately in a society where people don't have a lot of time to study issues or even the inclination to do so, they will say, am I sick of the party that's in power? If so, I'll pick the next biggest one, provided that the next biggest one is not every bit as toxic as the one I'm trying to get rid of. Mm-hmm. So to be sucked into power is the only way to assume power after some other party has left. That's the overwhelming um, force in electoral change, in, in party change. So you have to be number two. To take out number two, in this case, is to expose the progressive conservatives as the worse than liberals that they are.
2: And that was from um Freedom Party through the media lens which you can find online the entire uh, edit, 37 minutes it's awesome, it's totally media coverage, there's no narration or anything, it's just like what you heard and a lot of those um, that was a complete edit of various clips from different interviews, stretching from about 2000 to 2011 and of course one of the familiar voices you probably noticed in there was Steve Paikin of TVO who was always a good challenger to Paul on, on, on his strategy and things like that. So if you're interested in that, check that out online. There are a couple of by-elections going on
3: right now, too, for those in those ridings and uh, something to look into. Yes, for sure. And uh, I think Paul is, uh, Paul McKeever has hit home the point that I was trying to make about the Conservatives being um, the ones to target and not just for because they're in second place, but because of their uh, decades-long history of being the worst governors of this province. And um, Hudak is not going to be any different. Now, so when Hudak says we're going to create a million jobs over eight years, uh, it begs the question, what are the ideal conditions for creating a job? Besides, of course, the bare minimum of uh, having an employer looking to hire and an employee willing to work. If you look at it historically, there's been an established inverse and incontrovertible correlation between the degree to which government is involved in the economy and the prosperity of its people. Uh, the more government is involved, the less prosperous are its people. There's always, the inverse always, relationship. always. I've never found an exception to that. There's no exception yeah. to that rule. The most clear example would be a comparison, say, between the United States at the turn of the century, the 19th century, or 20th century, rather, and uh, Soviet Russia. The United States was a country with virtually no taxation and very few regulations on business or the economy. It was on the gold standard, and the Federal Reserve did not exist. So during that time, what was the conditions like there? There was an unprecedented employment opportunities for anybody who was seeking work. Unprecedented uh, opportunities for being creative. And a level of prosperity the likes of which the world had never seen in its entire history. The Soviet Union, just a few short years later, was a society where every aspect of society was controlled by the state, where the concept of taxation was moot, considering that you could earn nothing for yourself and that all your goods were rationed out by the state. Those who could not or would not work died (coughs) or were shipped off to the gulags. Modern-day examples, if more are even necessary, are the turnaround uh, of Great Britain under Margaret Thatcher, for example, uh, from the preceding Labour Party, the opening up of China to capitalism, Uh, Hong Kong, Enough said right there. Hong Kong. Just look at Hong Kong and it's uh, extremely low taxes. It's almost non-existent business regulations. East and, you and see West Berlin when the wall was up. Oh, good one, Bob. Yes, East and West Holy Berlin. Holy cow.
2: Talk about laboratory experiment.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Simply compare any Western nation, especially those of the Anglosphere, to any nation run by tribal collectives such as almost any nation in Af- Africa. In Africa, compare the relatively free nation of South Africa to the more interventionist nations on that continent. The evidence is there for anyone to see the less a government intervenes in an economy, the more prosperous the people are, the more employed the people are. And that includes all the people, including the poor. Just compare the average poor person in Canada to a poor person, say, in India, a country with decades of an over-intrusive government bureaucracy, which, thankfully, is changing. With every little money, the poor in can- with very little money, the poor here in Canada, that is, those who are not necessarily on the public dole, but are just simply poor, um, nonetheless, they can eat moderately well, have a heated home, enjoy inexpensive entertainment, and very little money. The poor in India live lives of sh- short misery. Lucky if they have a washroom. Hey, yes, huh? L- lucky if they have a bathroom. That you know? is absolutely correct. They, they have no roof over their head, they have no sanitary facilities, they have no money, they beg, and they die. I uh, just compare that in a country of uh, over-regulated country of India to, say, Canada.
2: I know people who got off the plane in India and went into a form of culture shock. They could not... Yeah. they could not almost walk the streets. They had to hide in the hotel and then get the hell out as quick as they could. <laughs> I'm
3: serious. Yeah, I know, yeah. Compare the relatively capitalist North America to the predominantly socialist countries of South America. There's no need to go on, really. Socialism breeds poverty for all. Capitalism breeds prosperity for all. That's it, and as you are so fond of saying, end of story. (laughs) Tim Hudak won't create one job with his plans and schemes. Only free individuals create jobs when the government gets out of the way. What should an Ontario government do to have a prosperous Ontario? Eliminate the costly OHIP. Allow private health insurers back into the province. Get rid of the minimum wage. Get rid of the income taxes, get rid of the taxes, get rid of the corporate taxes, get rid of the regulations. Let civil law regulate people's actions in a court, not some bureaucrat. And as the businessman M. Legendre said to the French finance minister Jean-Baptiste Colbert in 1680, when asked what could the government do to promote commerce, his reply, of course, was laissez-nous faire. And I'll leave it with that. Okay.
2: <laughs> leave it with that. And that's it for us this week. So join us again next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We will. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the clothes,
4: everything will be all right. Today's report is about little white lies.
1: What?
0: They're the same as little blue splinks. See, there's several kinds of white lies. Number one, the sports lie. I'm telling you, Harry, you should have seen the one that got away. I'm talking big, big, you know, so big it almost swamped the dinghy. Then, there are vanity lies. How old are you, Mrs. Vandergruff? I'm only 28 years old. Then, there are the kind of lies to keep you from getting your lips ripped off. Barbara Jean, that was the best meal I've ever had. Who can believe it was the first one you've ever cooked? I've never seen anybody do that with figs before. The secret must be in the cheese. That's the way it is here on Earth. Until next week. This is Mark, signing off.
5: Nano, nano. <laughs>